you'll want to get out your message outline. It says the glory of the Lord on it. One other uh, quick announcement. The session met this past week and received Katie Silver into membership. So welcome. We are delighted to have you. So, we are at the end of Exodus, a year just flown by. So Exodus 40 is our passage today. It's long, we're going to go through it as we go through the sermon, but let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we do need it. We need to be reminded of what makes you great. We need the glory of the Lord. We need to be reminded that Exodus isn't just a history story, but a redemption story. We need a redemption story. Thank you that Exodus points us to our Redeemer. Thank you for the way you reveal yourself in your grace and mercy. We ask that you would teach us from it again. Show us our sin. Show us our Savior. Show us the glory of your grace. Help us to understand the glory of this passage and the hope that it holds out to us. By your Spirit, apply it to our hearts, to our lives, to our own situations. Change us by it. Encourage us with it. Grant us hope through it. And so we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For we ask in his name, amen. Amen. During our recent all-church retreat at Meadowkirk, wasn't that a great time, those that were there? Huh? Yeah. I especially enjoyed the weather. It was wonderfully hot. A real bonding experience. Anyway, during our retreat, we had fun and games and food and snacks and discussion times with our teams, Go Blue, and had discussion times in the pool. Those were key. All around, it was a great time. And during one of those discussion times, we were given this question. <coughs> What's one thing you learned in our preaching series on Exodus? Personally, I thought that was a great question. <laughs> and it's good to see that the people weren't too scared to answer with me listening. And it was really, really good that nobody said nothing. Absolutely nothing. Didn't learn a thing. You know, sometimes you take what you can get. But folks did answer the question, and they had great answers. And I couldn't remember all of them, um, but some of them were things like, God's plans happen. Another person, one of our younger members, said something to the effect of, I was surprised to learn how the plagues not only happened, but that they defeated some of the false gods of Egypt. It's pretty insightful, especially since we went over all the plagues all the way back in January. Someone else shared how they loved learning all the details of building the tabernacle, that God cares about beauty, even down to the smallest details. I shared how I'm always struck about how relevant this book is to our lives today, even though it was written a few thousand years ago. Much of it could have been written about what's going on in our world and in our lives today. 
When we started this series one year ago, I said that just like Moses, we long for something we don't have. Being in the visible presence of the glory of the Lord. Hence the title of this series of this whole book of Exodus, The Glory of the Lord. In this book, God reveals himself. He's the main character. Not Moses, not the Israelites, not the Egyptians, not the law, not the miracles, not the judgments, not the tabernacle, just God. Exodus is all about God. And since this is the last sermon, the 42nd and last sermon, we did take a break at Christmas, if you remember. Didn't want to do the plagues for Advent. Um, But I'm going to spend some time on the meaning of the book by looking at the big picture of Exodus, and then we'll go through the text rather quickly, a little out of the ordinary, but I want to close by reminding you that this is a great book, and it's an amazing uh, book, and it's well worth our time. So let's start with the big picture, which is the foundational message of Exodus. I would suggest that as New Testament believers... We're a bit amazed when it comes to all the things that we've learned as Exodus has unfolded. You know, just as the internet has changed the world that we live in, we can hardly remember what life was like without it. It really wasn't that long ago that we didn't have it. But we don't remember that. It's sort of taken over. But Exodus, in the same way, has changed not just our understanding of the Bible, But so much of what we know about God and theology, the meaning of the New Testament, and the person and work of Jesus Christ, most of which makes little sense apart from the book of Exodus. There are so many themes, symbols, concepts that have deep biblical meaning which are formed in this book. It is foundational. Here's a few examples of what was absent prior to Exodus. There have been no context for words like the Lamb of God, the Passover, unleavened bread, wandering in the wilderness, the Ten Commandments, and manna from heaven. You wouldn't know what any of those things were about. There would be no law, sacrificial system, ark, tabernacle, priesthood, no identity of Israel as an independent nation, no understanding of God as Yahweh, I am, as transcendent and holy or imminent and near. Obviously, these are really significant themes as they relate to biblical theology, and it's remarkable how important Exodus is in the development of doctrine. But there's one more issue that's foundational to everything, salvation. Prior to Exodus, God was not known as a rescuing, saving, delivering God. And the Exodus event becomes a defining moment in God's relationship with his people. That's why we need Exodus. It's the foundational book for understanding God and the gospel. The great Old Testament scholar, Dr. J. Alec Moitier, he passed away Friday. His book, The Message of Exodus, was one of the main resources that I've used for the last year. Most of us don't know who the great academic biblical scholars are, but back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there was huge battles in the church world over the Bible. 
Is it inspired? Is it authoritative? And there were a handful of great biblical scholars who stood up and fought those fights so that our churches like ours would be able to stand up and confess an authoritative, inspired, inerrant word of God. Alec Moitcher was one of those people. Frank said earlier, we stand on the shoulders of giants throughout history. He was one of those giants. Um, and he says in this book, Exodus begins the normative Old Testament and biblical revelation of God's way of salvation. It underlines the nature of God as holy and of humankind as sinners. It explains the meaning of blood and sacrifice. It is a book of grace, which reaches down from heaven and of the law, which teaches redeemed sinners to live in heavenly terms. While some of these great biblical truths are foreshadowed in Genesis, Exodus pulls them all together, giving them a shape and definition that the rest of the Bible will not alter. Under the simplest of forms and by many a fascinating story, Exodus reveals fundamental truth and is, in fact, one of the Bible's greatest building blocks. That's great. This book defines God and his relationship with his people. Listen to what God says, Exodus 20, in the preamble to the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. <coughs> the events recorded, the laws given, the images portrayed, the worship inaugurated, all foundational to the gospel. The message that Jesus delivers his people from the slavery of sin. In the same manner God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, he delivers them from the slavery to sin. The salvation out of Egypt with a sacrificial lamb and blood is a clear indication of what's to come with Jesus. But Exodus does more than foreshadow. It establishes the foundational concepts upon which the new covenant is based and revealed in Jesus. As John the Baptist said, John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That statement has no meaning without Exodus. This book is foundational. So what did we learn that this book was about? To go back to that great question. What's the primary message? First, you might think it's about the people of Israel, since Exodus is a collection of their history. You could read events like the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and the building of the tabernacle, and easily draw the conclusion that this book is simply the story of God's people. And while Exodus contains some amazing stories about Israel, it's about so, so much more. We get a hint of the primary message of Exodus uh, in two texts. First one's found in Exodus chapter 6. God speaks to Moses uh, from the burning bush. And the second is our closing passage in Exodus 40, our text for today. So let's look at them in turn, Exodus 6, verses 6 through 8. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. 
and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. What do you hear and see? The prominence of the phrase, I am the Lord. God begins with this statement. He explains that the purpose of their deliverance is so that you shall know that I am the Lord. And God links his commandment to keep his promise to Abraham with a final affirmation, I am the Lord. So the book of, Ezra, uh, of Exodus is not really about Israel. It's actually about God. We see this even more at the end of the book, where we have finally arrived this morning. Everything in the book is leading to this climactic moment. The storyline of the book is that God delivered his people from slavery at the hands of the powerful nation of Egypt. He's brought them through the Red Sea, defeated their enemies, gave them his law, and specified what worship should be like. Where does this lead? Let's look at the very end, Exodus 40, starting at verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Don't miss the significance of this moment. The God who rescued them from slavery, drowned the powerful Egyptian army, displayed his glory on Mount Sinai, issued his holy law, lives among his people. God has delivered his people, and now he dwells in their midst. It's not like the so-called gods of other nations, unmoved and uninvolved in the lives of his people. God is near. And if I take those two passages and put them together, I think you could summarize the message of Exodus like this. Exodus displays the God who delivers his people, demands their holiness, and dwells among them. Most churches like the second and fourth D. They're not enamored with the first and third. But the message of Exodus is God is displayed. He delivers. He demands. He dwells. It's an easy way to remember the book. Exodus is all about God. The nation of Israel becomes the platform upon which the glory of the Lord is seen by the people of God and the rest of the world. Throughout the book, we see this emerging picture of what God's like. We see a God who controls history, who reveals himself as I am, who is holy, who acts to save his people, who acts in judgment, whose anger can be averted, who speaks, who's transcendent, and yet who lives among his people. Israel is a canvas 
on which God displays this amazing portrait of his glory. I find it interesting the Apostle Paul says something very similar in Ephesians 2. And of course, Ephesians is the book we're moving into next Sunday. Israel, see, was only the first canvas of God's glory. Ephesians 2 tells us, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The gospel is not about us. It is about the glory of the Lord. Exodus is not about Israel. It is about the glory of the Lord. So let's dive in. And see what it says. We start with verses 1 through 8 and what you should do. Verses 1 through 8 and what you should do. This book reaches this glorious climax in Exodus 40. The people have already seen something of God's glory. They'd seen it in their deliverance from Egypt. They'd seen it in the fire and smoke on the mountain. But they hadn't yet seen a clear, visible manifestation of the glory of the Lord. Moses had been up on the mountain, and so had Israel's elders, but the people are still waiting for a fuller revelation of God's glory. They're waiting to see the fulfillment of the promise that God made back in Exodus 29 when he said, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. He actually says, and they shall know that I am the Lord of God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's four times at four very key places in the book of Exodus. And so now we've arrived where this is going to happen. And the anticipation is building as the Israelites get to work on the tabernacle. They've gotten all the instructions, all the details. They know exactly what they're supposed to do. They got the builders, they got the architects, and they got Moses. And now they actually start to do it, and they're eagerly expecting to see the glory come down. But before they can see it, they need to actually erect the tabernacle, some assembly required. So we start with verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. The timing's important. First day of the first month. In other words, God told Moses to set up the tabernacle on the anniversary of Israel's exodus from Egypt. One year to the very day. They've now been camped at the bottom of Mount Sinai for a year. And this makes a clear connection between what happened at the Red Sea and what happened at the tabernacle. The building of the tabernacle is the culmination of everything that God's been working uh, for since he first brought his people out of Egypt. So God tells Moses how to put everything together and where to put it, starting at verse 3. And you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. 
And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. So he follows a very deliberate order. It's working from the inside out. First Moses to wreck the tabernacle, then to set up the furniture inside, followed by the furniture that goes outside, and finally by the fence that goes around the perimeter. So what you should do, simply put, is what the Lord tells you to do. And that's the first thing. What should I do? Do what God tells you to do. It's not a hard concept. It's hard to obey, but it's not hard to understand. One of the things I teach in my preaching class at RTS is that you should always try to answer the why question. Why does God tell us to do something? And that's our next point, actually starting at verse 9, why you should do it. Because once you set up the tabernacle, Moses is to set it apart, making it holy, anointing it for the sacred service of God. God says, verse 9, Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furniture, so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar, so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. So in this way, the temple and all their furnishings were going to be dedicated to God. Moses also needs to consecrate the men who will serve at the tabernacle. So God reminds him to ordain Aaron and the other priests, starting at verse 12. Then you shall bring in. None of this has happened yet. He's still telling him what he's going to do. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. So like the tabernacle itself, the men who served there had to be anointed for the holy service of God. Why all this emphasis on holiness? Because God's glory is not going to be revealed to unholy, sinful people. And that's a big problem because they were, in fact, unholy, sinful people. Somehow they have to be made holy. Somehow their sin has to be atoned for. Otherwise, they would never be able to see the glory of the Lord, and that's what they came for. So we have what you should do, build, uh, set up, erect, fill the tabernacle, and why you should do it. So you have a place where sin can be atoned for, and you can be made holy to the Lord. And then you can worship him and see his glory. Well, that naturally leads to the next point, which is how you should do it. How you should do it. I put a lot of thought into all these blanks, as you can tell. You know, Starting at verse 16, God's final instructions for the tabernacle, which Moses is very careful to follow. Starting at verse 16, 
This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. That's a key phrase. In the first month in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. So, to show that Moses did what he was told, the Bible proceeds to tell us how he set up the tabernacle piece by piece. And as each piece is put in place, the suspense builds. Would God really come down in glory? Moses starts with the tabernacle itself, the tent of meeting. This is the holy dwelling place of God, representing his presence with his people. And the prophet set it up just the way God said, verse 18. Moses erected the tabernacle, he laid its bases, and set up its frames, and put it in it put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. So basically, Moses pitches the tent of meeting, just as God said. But the glory did not come down. So then we read verse 20. He took the testimony and put it in the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. This is the Holy of Holies, the most important part of the tabernacle. The ark of the covenant represents God's throne. And so it's the place where he rules in majesty. And inside the ark goes the covenant, including the Ten Commandments. Thus the ark showed God's legal authority over Israel. It also shows his grace because it's uh, covered with the mercy seat where the blood is sprinkled to make atonement for Israel's sin. So Moses put the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. But the glory did not come down. So next he set up the furniture that went out in the holy place. This is the next court. Starting with the table of showbread, verse 22. He put the table in the tent of meeting <coughs> excuse me, on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. In case you were wondering why we have a table with bread on it. This is the bread of the presence, set out as an offering for God, which should precede at the end of each week. It's a reminder of God's provision a sign of fellowship that he shared with his people. It's a table of communion. God offered himself to his people, and the people offered themselves back to God. Remember that when we celebrate communion next Sunday. So Moses put the bread on the table, but the glory did not come down. So then the prophet set up the golden lampstand, Verse 24, he put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. The lampstand flickered with light, showing that in both creation and redemption, God is the source of all light. With its buds and blossoms, the lampstand looked like the tree of life. So it's a reminder that God's the origin of life as well as the source of light. So Moses puts the lights on the lampstand of life, but the glory did not come down. So he proceeds to set up the altar of incense, which stood between the table and the lampstand. 
next to the Holy of Holies, verse 26. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. So this is Israel's altar of prayer where intercession ascends to God's throne. And on it, Moses offers the first incense and the first prayers. But the glory did not come down. So then it's time to step outside the tent, the tabernacle. There's more furniture to put in place. And Moses starts with the great uh, bronze altar of sacrifice, verse 29. He set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. So by making these offerings, Moses is inaugurating the system of sacrifice to atone for Israel's sin and give praise to God. The burning altar is in place, but the glory did not come down. So next, Moses sets up the bronze basin where the priests are consecrated for their sacred duties. Verse 30, he set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. So the basin's ready. The priests had a place to wash, symbolizing the cleansing power of God's grace, the purity that is required for his service, but the glory did not come down. Finally, Moses erects the fence that forms the courtyard around the tabernacle. Verse 33, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So you have a curtain that separates the tabernacle from the rest of the camp, thus showing that the God who lived there was holy and is set apart from sinful people. And because the curtain forms an entrance, it shows there's a way for sinners to approach his holiness. And this is how Moses set up the tabernacle. The Bible summarizes by saying the end of verse 33, so Moses finished the work. The prophet did everything right. Over and over again, the Bible says that he set up the tabernacle just as the Lord had commanded. Everything was in place. The only thing missing is the one thing that everybody's waiting for, the presence of God, the glory of the Lord. It's not something Moses can put in place. With the right instructions, he could put the tabernacle together but only God can fill it with glory. And why the emphasis on that repeated phrase, just as the Lord commanded Moses? Because Moses did exactly what God told him to do. Moses was deliberately and intentionally obedient. Why is that important? God's, God's glory is not going to be revealed to disobedient people. And that's a big problem because they were, in fact, disobedient people. Remember the golden calf? How did that work out? Not so well. A lot of people died in judgment. God wants his people to do what he says. He wants them to be obedient to his word. Otherwise, they would never be able to see the glory of the Lord. And that's what they came for. 
So we have what you should do, build, set up, fill the tabernacle. We have why you should do it, so you have a place where your sin can be atoned for and you can be made holy to the Lord. And we have how you should do it, by doing exactly what God tells you, being obedient to his word. And then you can worship him and see his glory. And that sets us up for the last point, which is who you should do it for. Starting at verse 34. As Moses finishes his work, the people watched to see what would happen. They didn't have to wait long. The last curtain is tied to the last fence post, and the prophet steps back. In verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is the divine seal of approval on all the work that Moses and the Israelites uh, had done. This is on for everything going back, chapter 25. God came down in glory. The people had seen glimpses of glory before. They saw the pillar of cloud and fire that protected them from Pharaoh's army and guided them through the wilderness, Exodus 13 and 14. They'd seen it in the miracle of the Red Sea when God was glorified in the deliverance of Israel and the destruction of Egypt. They had seen glory in the fire and smoke on the distant heights of Mount Sinai, Exodus 24. God, uh, Moses has actually seen the glory, or at least the back of it, when he met with God on the mountain, Exodus 33. But neither Moses or the Israelites had seen the glory come down in all its splendor as it did when it hovered over the tabernacle, filling that now sacred space with the glory of the Lord. The cloud of God's glory is what we call a theophany, a visible manifestation of an invisible God. God's glory is the weightiness of his divine, infinite perfection. You might say the glory is the godness of God. It's this glory that descends on the tabernacle, filling it with light. The great Bible commentary commentator F.B. Meyer says this brilliant light spoken of as the glory of the Lord shone from within the tabernacle itself so much so that the curtains were transfigured by its glow and the whole place was rendered resplendent with glory. The glory that filled the tabernacle is a spectacular display of the radiance of God's being. The God of the Exodus, the God of power who made the heavens and the earth, the God of justice who plagued the Egyptians, the God of love who kept his covenant with Israel, the God of providence who led his people through the wilderness, the God of truth who gave them his law, the God of mercy who atoned for their sins, the God of holiness who set them apart for service. This great God was present in glory. And when the people looked at the tabernacle, they could see that God was in the house. And then the Bible says something very, very surprising. You know, to understand it, we need to remember the tabernacle, the whole design is that it's a place to approach God. It's the house where God lived, and because God's holy had to be separated from the place where the Israelites lived, but there's a way to enter. 
There's a courtyard. Sinners can make the blood sacrifice that would bring them into a right relationship with God. The tent of meeting had an entrance, a curtain that allowed the priests to go inside the holy place. The tabernacle is designed to give people access. It's a place to meet with the living God. But when the glory came down, access was denied. Even Moses can't get in. Verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Exodus has been moving towards this climactic moment when the tabernacle would be finished and the people would be able to meet with God and the moment came and the tabernacle was filled with great glory such glory that they couldn't get in. And from this we learn how necessary it is for anyone who wants to meet with God to come with a blood sacrifice for sin. Exodus leads right into Leviticus, which begins with God giving Moses a long list of instructions for making sacrifices at the tabernacle. The only way to approach the God of all glory is to come with a blood sacrifice. By denying Moses' entrance, God once again taught his people the necessity of atonement for sin. We also learn that God is infinitely more glorious than we can expect or imagine. You know, after a while, we start to get used to God. We become familiar with the vocabulary used to describe God and his attributes. You know, we've heard about his holiness and justice and mercy and love. And we can list those terms and maybe we can even define them. But do we have any idea of how glorious God really is? Are we aware of the mortal danger of unholy people being in the presence of his holiness? Do we sense how overwhelming it is to come into the presence of his glory? Moses knew God better than any man alive. And yet when the glory came down, he wasn't able to enter. And neither can we penetrate God's glory. We can only stand back and worship with reverence and awe. But there comes another surprise. The great and glorious God of the Exodus, who, as 1 Timothy 6 tells us, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. This great and glorious God of the Exodus is with his people to save them. The same glory cloud that kept them away would stay with them to guide them. That's why God came down in glory, so he could be close to his people. And so thus the book of Exodus ends with these words, verse 36, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. These words gave the Israelites assurance that the God of all glory would be present to grant them the blessings of his saving grace. So here we see God's imminence, his nearness, and transcendence, his greatness. God didn't just rescue the Israelites from Egypt and then dump them in the wilderness to fend for themselves. 
He's with his people for good. He wanted to do something more than just save them. He wanted to have a relationship with them. It's the great comfort that gave them great confidence for the future and all their travels and through all their troubles, God would be with them every step of the way. He would guide them by his light. He would defend them by his power, leading them night and day until they reached the promised land. God saved his people for his glory. Think of the whole book of Exodus. Exodus begins with the people enslaved under the violent, tyrannical rule of the pharaohs. The Israelites were bound in chains, forced to build great cities along the Nile. They suffered and died in Egypt, a land that was not their home. But God had a plan for their redemption. And according to his covenant promise, he would rescue them from Egypt, lead them to the promised land. God did this for Israel's good and for his glory. All through Exodus, we see God working to save his people. And whenever he explains why he's saving them, he says it's for his own glory. Why did God meet with Moses at the burning bush so the Israelites would know that he is the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Exodus 3 and 6? Why did God tell Pharaoh to let his people go so they could go out in the desert and worship him, give him the glory of their praise, Exodus 7. Why did he cast the armies of Egypt into the depths of the sea? Because he said, Exodus 14, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. In response to all these mighty deeds of salvation, the Israelites gave God the glory. As soon as they passed through the sea, they began to sing the song of the horse and rider, Exodus 15. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And they praised him again when they reached Mount Sinai, and again when they renewed the covenant and worshiped God for the gift of his law. And then they began the work on the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the house of God. All of this is in keeping with God's plan by which his people would be saved for his glory. The exodus was all to the glory of the Lord. Tim Keller wrote the foreword to a little book called Loving the Old Testament by Dr. Alec Moitcher, who again died Friday morning. The foreword to the book was reprinted Friday afternoon by the Gospel Coalition. It's a wonderful way to end our series on Exodus. Tim writes, And Dr. Moyer asked us to imagine how the Israelites under Moses would have given their testimony to somebody who asked for it. They would have said something like this. We were in a foreign land in bondage under the sentence of death. But our mediator the one who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God, took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and he led us out. Now we are on the way to the promised land. We are not there yet, of course, but we have the law to guide us. And through blood sacrifice, we also have his presence in our midst. So he will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. And then Dr. Moyer concluded, 
Now think about that. A Christian today could say the same thing almost word for word. You know, in the Lord of the Rings, can't finish the series without a Lord of the Rings quote. Sam asks Frodo in the second book, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. Everyone wants to know the answer to that. And the book of Exodus shows us what God did for Israel was glorious. The exodus from Israel is so famous that people are still talking about it today. But as glorious as it was, it cannot compare to the glorious things that God has done for us. The glory in the tabernacle is the climax of exodus, but not the climax of redemption. It's only the first glimmerings of the glory that God has prepared for us in Jesus Christ. The book of Exodus is really his story. Jesus is the Moses of our salvation, the mediator who goes uh, for us before God. Jesus is the lamb of the Passover, the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is our way out of Egypt, the deliverer who baptizes us in the sea of his grace. Jesus is the bread in the wilderness, the provider who gives us what we need for daily life. Jesus is the voice from the mountain declaring his law for our lives. Jesus is the altar of our burning through whom we offer up praise to God. Jesus is the light on our lampstand, the source of our life and light. Jesus is the basin of our cleansing, the sanctifier of our souls. Jesus is our great high priest who prays for us at the altar of incense. And Jesus is the blood on the mercy seat, the atonement that reconciles us to God. As we come to the end of Exodus, we see that Jesus is the glory in the tabernacle. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the dwelling place of God. Colossians 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Since glory is one of God's essential attributes, when God caused all his fullness to dwell in Jesus Christ, his glory came down which is why we read in the Gospel of John, John 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is our tabernacle. Jesus Christ is the glory of the Lord for us. The great God of the Exodus has saved us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Think about that. Thank him for that. Do that now. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, for a year now I have started every one of these closing prayers by saying thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Once again, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Thank you for this great book of Exodus, this great redemption story. Thank you for the picture of the tabernacle. Thank you for 
how it teaches us how much you care about worship. Thank you for how it teaches us how much we need to be cleansed to come into your presence, that we have to come into your presence by sacrifice because we're sinners. But most of all, thank you that it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the tabernacle. He has tabernacled in our midst, and in him we've been united to you by faith. Help us to place our trust in him and to be confident that if we're in a relationship with him, with his people, we know your presence now and forevermore. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.